Um, but yeah, I'll just say a little bit before I get started. Um, like Cameron said, we started uh, doing a Bible study two years ago. A couple of my uh, Bible study guys are in here today. Um, and so I've gotten a little experience teaching the Bible, um, mainly under the careful mentorship of Cameron Cole. Um, and so when he invited me to teach an Advent Sunday School class, that was a very daunting challenge, but I leaped at the opportunity because um, I was just really excited to do that. So um, we're going to get started with Haggai today. If you haven't found the book yet, um, that's probably because you may not have heard of it if you're like me. <laughs> um, it's go to the end of the Old Testament, um, find Zephaniah and Zechariah, the two Z's, and it's right in between them. Um, hopefully that'll be the only Z's you catch this class. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Got one on the board. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's go ahead and get going here. Um, I'm going to start off with a little bit of um, historical context and overview. Um, for those of you who are not very familiar with Israeli history, um, the Haggai ranks among the minor prophets of the Old Testament, so he's not one of the like real long books, but he's pretty short. Um, he's post-exilic, which means that he comes after the Babylonian exile or captivity that the Jews experienced were about 70 years. Um, that occurred after the Jews obviously came out of Egypt through Moses, were given the promised land, um, lived there for a long time, and then the Babylonians came in, uh, destroyed the temple and took their land, and moved them into exile into Babylon. And they were there for about 70 years, which was a big deal and a catastrophic event um, for the Jews. And then, uh, But God promised that um, they would return. And so through a Persian ruler by the name of Cyrus the Great, the Persians came in, conquered Babylon back from Babylon, and then allowed the Jews to return to their homeland, which was um, really a, a miraculous work that God performed through Cyrus. Um, so um, Haggai, his name, mean, his name translates in Hebrew to feastal, which promotes a common conjecture that Haggai was born during a festival of Israel. But uh, some scholars believe that his full name was actually Hagia, which um, could mean Festival of Yahweh. The H on the end sort of ties in with Yahweh, so um, that's just sort of an interesting little tidbit. Um, and Haggai uh, comes to Israel in the year 520 BC, which we date um, about 18 years after the Jews had returned from cap captivity. So it's been a considerable amount of time. Obviously, the captivity is probably very present still in the consciousness of the Jews. They're not fully rebuilt yet, um, but they have had time to get back on their feet, which is going to be important for understanding the lesson. Um, well, um, that concludes our history lesson. Um, we're going to start by reading verses 1 through 11 um, of Haggai, and I want you all to bear in mind the question, in these first verses, we're going to get a picture of the problem facing Israel right now. There's always a problem in the Old Testament with Israel because they're constantly in flux, weaving in and out of God's graces. Um, and so, what is the physical, obvious problem staring the Israelites in the face? Okay. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. 
You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hill and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Okay. So hopefully you got, especially by the end of that passage, the fact that God has really decimated the prosperity of Israel and their brief return home. I mean... Um, they're trying to rebuild, but as we learn in verse 11, I have called a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. That's pretty emphatic statement saying that God has, is not favorable with Israel right now, um, and that he's trying to express that through nature and showing them that their ways are not in accordance with his ways, and they need to get back on track. Um, so, And also what we learn in the first passage here is that they have not rebuilt the temple, which is a big problem. Um, the temple to the Jews was God's sanctuary. Um, the temple to the Jews was God's sanctuary. It was where his special presence resided. Um, it's where his sort of shock and awe glory um, was most manifested. It's where they made their sacrifices, which is how they atoned for their sins before Jesus Christ came, um, which was obviously hugely important. And the fact that they've sort of neglected the temple means that they've neglected God altogether. They've, they've very much lost their way. This is a big problem. It's not like they were told to do their chores and forgot to take out the garbage. Like, they've completely strayed from the path. Um, and so I'm going to go back through sort of verse by verse what we just read. Um, and I think what's especially important here is even in, like, the most stern face of God, we get a picture of, like, a really stern, angry God here um, who's very displeased. But it still reveals so much about God's character and even in that, like, some of his mercy. So um, in verse 1, uh, the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. That should just strikes me right off the bat of the historical accuracy and precision of the book. Like, this is not meant to be taken as mythology. Um, the biblical authors were not blasé when it came to matters of history in either the New Testament or the Old Testament. Um, and so this is dated very exactly. Um, and that's going to happen three times in the book. Um, also, it being the first day of the month of August meant that it was the New Moon Festival, which would have marked sort of the close of the harvest season for the Jews. Um, so we're at the beginning of August here, um, and also sort of ties into the theme of a festival going on, um, as Haggai's name means feastal, as we talked about at the beginning. Um, and it also shows God's timing, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But the fact that it comes at the end of the harvest season means that really like the significant portion of the Jews' labor was over for this season. Um, you know, I mean, like, the harvest season would be a season of survival because they had to harvest um, their product in order to survive for their very sustenance. Um, and the fact that God is now introducing the fact that they need to turn their attention to the temple shows that he is merciful. Like, he's not asking them to choose between feeding themselves and building his temple. Like, they're on their feet. They're okay. They're kind of messing around at this point. Um, and then also the audience. Um, he talks to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So he's talking to a governor and a high priest, um, which means 
We're talking to church and state here. Like, this is a big deal. Um, and God wants his message disseminated to the whole people of Israel. Um, in verse 2, um, God is referred to as, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, I think the Lord of hosts uh, reference is repeated 14 times in only 38 verses in all of Haggai, um, which is intentional because it represents God's sovereignty. Um, saying the Lord of hosts, you might as well say the president. It's like calling the president the commander-in-chief. It's referring to his militaristic power over the armies of heaven, um, that he is an all-powerful general and that like God is here, you guys are here, you need to do your job. Um, <laughs> so... Um, when God first begins his address, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Um, I think these people is pretty cold right off the bat. You know, I mean, the Jews were the chosen people of God, and typically you would see them referred to in the Old Testament as my people. Um, but here we see them called these people, which is sort of cold and unfamiliar and a bit confrontational. Um, secondly, I've seen a couple interpretations on this verse. Um, some people... You could posit that when it says these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord, there could have been like an actual gathering where they formally expressed like we're going to wait to rebuild the temple at a later time. Um, but I think that's kind of unlikely. I think more what God's doing here is he's saying, I'm looking at all of your inaction. I'm seeing the things that you're prioritizing over me. And what that says to me is that um, you've, you've chosen not to build the temple over, or you've chosen these things over not building the temple. Um, and the people were just sort of um, doing things very unintentionally and without the consciousness of God in their head. Um, and so, um, moving to verse 3 and 4, um, it says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Um, and this is where we're sort of getting to the crux of God's sort of accusations here. Um, when he says... Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Paneled houses, um, you could supplement that with like ornate houses or overly decorated houses. The fact that they're putting paneling on their houses means this isn't just for shelter anymore. Like they've gone out and they're um, adorning their houses to an extent that is unnecessary, especially given the fact that they've neglected God's temple. Um, and it says, while this house lies in ruins. Um, so God's pretty angry, justifiably. Um, and then it says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Um, this is the first time we encounter the phrase, consider your ways, but we're going to encounter it twice, I think, in just the passage we read, and four times throughout the whole book, at least in some variation. It's repeated in chapter 1, verse 5, chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 14, uh, 15, and twice in chapter 2, verses 18. Um, in AP English, we would call that little device an anaphora. And um, if you don't think it's very powerful, you can ask Martin Luther King, who used it in his I Have a Dream speech. Um, God is reminding them, like, it's not, this is not a little deal. He keeps coming back to the same point, reiterating it through Haggai. Um, and Haggai is sort of a one-message prophet. He's very clear about what needs to be done, um, and he's not going to allow the Jews to sort of escape it, um, which is good. Um, in 6 through 8, I think this makes a powerful statement about the way that God operates when he interferes in worldly affairs. Um, in verse 6, we see that the Jews have just encountered calamity after calamity after being home. Um, you have sown much and harvested little. 
You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Like, everything they're doing is futile. Um, everything they're doing doesn't amount to what they expected it to. Um, and so, obviously, we know from reading Haggai that this was because of their laziness in the face of rebuilding God's temple. Um, but the Jews, because they were just sort of ignorant and had lost their way, um, needed Haggai to come and remind them of this. Um, I think the verbs here are especially important. Um, eat, drink, clothe, and earn wages. Um, those were chosen particularly because, I mean, those are like basic necessities. Eat, drink, clothe, earn wages. That's like everyday life. Everyone has to do those things. Um, this isn't like superfluous stuff that they're struggling with. They're not struggling with like running a marathon. They're struggling to eat, drink, clothe, earn wages. Um, so they're pretty adrift. Um, when you read the second item in the list, you drink, but you never have your fill. My mind immediately jumped to John 4.14, where God describes himself as a living water. Um, in the context of that passage, he's talking about how um, anyone who drinks the water that I bring to them will have a living water that sustains them eternally. Um, and here we can see that the Old Covenant is just not holding up to what the Jews need it to. Um, they're drinking, but they, they keep having to come to refresh themselves. It's not sustaining them um, for how they need. Um, but here's the crux of my point for these like few verses here. Um, and that's when it comes in God's response in verse 8, which is so fascinating to me. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 7, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, says the Lord. I think I was struck most by what it didn't say. It doesn't say, Rebuild my house so that your harvest may be bountiful and your stomach's filled. Um, the purpose of God's argument isn't on the people getting what they want physically. Um, the primary purpose of everything that God does is for his glory um, and his worship. And so um, I just found that extremely interesting that even when God is specifically pointing out the physical um, inadequacies that the people are experiencing in their daily lives, um, he still goes back to, but remember why you're doing this. You're not doing this for you, you're doing this for me. And the focus is always on me. Um, verses 9 through 11. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what, ground, on the, ground, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Um, I want to talk about what happens in verse 9 through 11, but I want to talk about an anecdote first. Um, for the past three years, I was on the Mountain Brook uh, High School track team. I threw discus. And uh, two years ago, we hired um, a coach whose name was Bobby Peterson. He's very young. He had worked out at JH Ranch a couple of summers. He was a very serious Christian and very enthusiastic. And um, one day, I think on the bus ride back home from a long trip to Memphis, we were talking and we got into sort of a serious biblical conversation. And he mentioned to me that one of his favorite parts of the whole Bible was in Genesis, right after the fall. Um, Adam and Eve are sort of cowering away from God. They're trying to hide their sins, hide their faces. Um, and God swoops in. He comes down. And instead of just start reorganizing everything to his will, um, as he's perfectly entitled to do, he has sovereign power over everything. Instead, he asks, where are you? Um, and just by asking a question, God implies his desire to have a relationship with us. Like, God, doesn't, God knows where they are. The fact that like he already knows everything and then he still asked the question is what's so interesting to me. And um, so every time, so when I read this passage, and in the middle of it, you see 
Um, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Question mark. It's like, even though God's, God's explaining to them everything that they've done wrong to him, he's explaining to them how they've totally strayed from him and abandoned him, and he's still like reaching out to them, like asking them to come to this conclusion themselves. He's like, can, can you not see what ails you? Can you not see that the fact that you have distanced yourself from me is the root of your problems? Um, and I want you to recognize that, and I want you to be a part of this healing process. I want to include you. Um, so even at his most accusatory and confrontational, even when he's calling himself the Lord of hosts, he's supposed to be seen here in this passage as like a general of, of heavenly armies, as a commander of angels. Um, the person who's here and we're here still wants to meet us. Um, so that's pretty special. All right, now I'm going to have Cameron read verses um, 12 through 15. Uh, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them, sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. All right, great. Um, so again, we have another date, another reference to actual specific time. This is a historical book. Um, and like I said, that's going to happen three times in the whole book of Haggai. And I'll go ahead and tell you, um, if you actually go in and you mark out the dates of when those three dates occur, um, you find out that the whole book of Haggai only occurs over about a four-month period, probably from August to December or maybe like September to January. Um, and so the fact that he only talked for four months and what we're about to get in here in these verses, like Haggai was a very successful prophet, especially among prophets. Um, you know, we're used to, um, or maybe you're more familiar with Paul, um, trying to go out and evangelize the world and he's just meets constant resistance. Um, he goes through constant trials and tribulations on account of his faith. And that's a sort of a similar story in the Old Testament with a lot of the prophets is that, um, their preaching was not always very well received. And so, but Haggai, as we see in this verse, it says, um, and the, um, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Um, so that was a pretty quick turnaround, right? <laughs> like, verse 11, God was calling for, or God was telling them that he had called for a curse on the ground and all their labors. And verse 12, it says, the remnant of people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. Um, but I want to talk about sort of the qualifiers in that statement. Um, the first thing it says, it obeys the voice of the word of their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. So the first step that took into making this transition from we don't care about the Lord, we don't care about the temple, we're going to build our own houses, we're self-centered, to saying, okay, yeah, we need to change our ways, is that the fact that they recognize that the Lord their God had sent him. Um, so this isn't, they're not just listening to Haggai. They're not all like best friends with Haggai and they're like, you know, this guy's really smart. This is probably a good idea. They're like, they can clearly see palpably in Haggai that there's something special about him that the Lord their God is speaking through him. And then secondly, and the people feared the Lord. Um, so not only do they recognize that God is speaking through him, but then they have reverence for God. Um, you know, the fear of the Lord is a very important um, aspect of the Bible. And um, we see how effective that is in persuading the people away from their sins here. Um, 
And then in verse 13, we have, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up um, stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, um, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Um, verse 13 hits me like a punch in the face. Um, so after the after the people have after the people have agreed that you know this messenger is sent by God and we fear God so we need to change our ways um, immediately the next verse then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message I am with you declares the Lord um, so I mean that's the greatest promise and the greatest gift that the people of Israel could have hoped for at that time um, they're faced with just a truly daunting task of rebuilding Solomon's temple um, especially when they're only been back 18 years like they're nowhere near the prosperity that they were at the height. Um, of their kingdom under Solomon. And so um, the idea of rebuilding the temple would have probably been pretty scary to them. And the Lord God's message to them is just, I am with you. That's all you need. You don't need anything else. Um, I am here, and that's going to be enough. And also what happens to the people after he says that, um, it says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the spirit of Joshua, the spirit of the remnant of the people, and so all these people are coming together. You know, we, ha- we see low and high. We see high priest, governor, and the remnant of the people. All their spirits are stirred up. They're all coming together. They're all being unified. Um, their, their desires are roused. Their apathy is dispelled. Um, and that's what God wants for his people, especially in the Old Testament. And then now today, after Jesus has come and we're all welcomed into the new covenant, um, that we're all welcomed as children of God and we're all asked into this unification with Christ. Um, but in the Old Testament, unfortunately, we only get like glimpses of this. So we see that for a second here, that it seems like everyone is coming together. Uh, they're all realizing they're like brotherhood under God. Um, but unfortunately, obviously, that's not going to last for the whole time. Um, all right, Cameron, can you do uh, verses 1 through 5? Yes. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Okay. So verses 1 and 2 are sort of the same of what we've seen before with the dating. And um, the Lord's telling uh, Haggai to speak to Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua. Um, And then in verse 3, he says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? So this house is going to be the temple. Um, And what he's referring to is Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. So the Jews were only kept in captivity for in Babylon for about 70 years. And in Ezra, I think, we know that there were some old men who had been there um, before they went to captivity, survived the captivity, and come back. Um, and so they remembered what Solomon's temple looked like. And from all accounts of the Bible, Solomon's temple was just surpassing in majesty and glory and gold and riches. Um, like, it would have been a sight to see. And so coming back, um, like we talked about earlier, um, seeing their temple in ruins and knowing their status in the world, they probably could be pretty easily bullied if any other powers around them wanted to. Um, and so they don't have a lot of riches. 
um, the fact that they're going to have to rebuild this temple, they all, they're all sort of thinking to themselves, like, there's no way that we can ever be as good as Solomon's temple was. Like, this is going to be just a shadow of what we had. And so they're pretty dismayed. I think in Ezra it actually says that when the temple is dedicated that the older men wept um, because, you know, it was just so inferior. Um, and so in verse 4, we see it says, Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, be strong, O Joshua, be strong, all the people of the land. Um, so yet now sort of struck me as it's sort of an immediate transition. God's like, I know what you're thinking. I know you're down. Your spirits um, are sort of overcome with this dismay about what the temple could be and uh, how hard the work is going to be. He says, don't worry about that. Remember, I'm with you. Um, we're going to do this thing, and you just need to put those thoughts away. Um, and then he repeats three times, um, be strong. And, you know, be strong, I sort of took as, you could say, have faith, take heart, do not be, um, do not be afraid. I think some translations say take courage. Um, it reminded me of when the angels come to the shepherds on the night in which uh, Jesus is born. They say, do not be afraid. It's a, it's a comfort word. It's not saying be strong, like muster up the courage. You've got to buckle down, pull up your bootstraps and get this temple working. It's like, be strong in the knowledge that I am here with you. Um, have faith, sort of calm your spirits, and let's move forward together. Um, and so in verse 5, it says, According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. And so he's repeating, um, verse 5, we see this a lot in the Old Testament where God um, or someone or one of God's servants will look back at past experience and say, you know, we were down and out here, um, we were being invaded by this army, um, you know, our riches were low, our place in the world was low, and God came through and God turned it around and we were able to come out of that okay. Um, surely that's going to be the same situation here. So that's like when God's saying, according to the covenant I made when you came out of Egypt, he's reminding them, We've been here before. You may have just come out of captivity from Babylon, but I brought you out of captivity from Egypt too. And you know what happened after that. So we can make the same thing happen here. And then he repeats, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Um, that's the only like substantiation for God's claim. And it's the only substantiation he needs is that I am with you. My spirit is in your midst. We can work, we can work out all the rest of the stuff. All right. Um, Cameron, can you do six through nine? Yes. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill the house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Yes. All right. This, is a wonder this must have come as a wonderful relief to the Jews, I think. Um, because in verse 6... Who's the subject of the verse? It's I. It's God's the subject. It says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Um, that should have probably been pretty comforting because um, standing there in front of the um, you know, dilapidated temple <laughs> and looking at it, they're worried. Their probably first concerns are like, where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to get all the adornments and the decorations? And God says, that's my job. It's not your job. I'll take care of it. I'm taking responsibility on that. And God does that a lot for us, um, where he takes on all the responsibility of the performance and the responsibility of being meritable to um, execute a job. God takes on that for us. Um, and he also doesn't allow the Jews to have any disillusionment about their role in the process. Um, he's, he says, 
even if you do go out and like collect some gold or collect some silver, like that's my work. All the gold was mine, all the silver's mine, I created it, I own it, I have dominion over all the land. Um, you don't need to question that either. Um, and um, also there's sort of a sentiment here, I feel like, where he says, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. Um, that, you know, something better than gold and silver is on its way. You know, that's the, the ultimate goal isn't the silver and the gold. The ultimate goal is that God will reside in this house that we're going to build. And so that's what's going to be glor- that's what's going to be um, gloried about it is not the gold and the silver, but the fact that God dwells there. Um, so, good thoughts. One second. And then um, I'm going to read verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And so... Um, I think 7, 8, and 9, um, we're sort of starting to feel a little bit of messianic undertones. Um, you know, the Old Testament, I've been in Cameron's classes enough times to know that the Old Testament points to the New Testament, points to Jesus. Um, and so when he says, the latter glory of this shall shall be greater than the former, um, and in this place I will give peace. Um, peace, there's the word shalom, which is a very sacred word in Jewish culture. Um, and then it also reminds me, in Ephesians 2.14, um, the writer says, for he himself is our peace. I'm sorry, the writer being Paul. Um, he being Jesus is our peace. So uh, Jesus himself is referred to as peace. And in Isaiah, he's, that's where we get the uh, epithet for Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Um, so Jesus embodies peace, and this is the temple that Jesus will ultimately come to. All right, um, 10 through 14, Cameron. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law, someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then, how far am I going? Uh, through 14. Oh, okay, sorry. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it so? Is it with the people and with the nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, that and what they offer there is unclean. Okay, so verses 10 through 14 feel a little bit different. Um, we sort of have a deviation from the main dialogue, and Haggai goes off on this. He's creating an analogy is what he's doing. He's asking the priest to confirm the law for him, um, and what he's getting at is sort of a gritty truth about sin and about holiness. Um, so he asks them, you know, if you have this holy thing, and... Um, someone else touches it and then they touch something else, does that then become holy? And they're like, no. And then he asked them, well, if you have this dead corpse, um, which if you were to touch it, you would be defiled um, and you'd have to be cleansed. And then you go and touch something else, does that then become um, defiled? And they say yes. And so um, we're seeing that, you know, sin is sort of contagious and holiness doesn't seem to be. Um, Holiness is a lot harder to come by than sin. Sin is everywhere. And um, what he's going to get to in verses, let's go ahead and read... um, 15 through 19 as well, okay. and I'll sort of talk about all the guys. Now then, consider from this day onward, before the stone, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. But when one came to wine, came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you in all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? 
Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Okay, so remember the analogy he set up in 10 through 14. Um, sin is contagious, holiness is not. And then he's saying, um, now look back to when before we started this temple, before we started rebuilding the temple, what do you remember about your experience when you went to um, go draw wine um, or when you went to like gather your harvest? And he says, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to a vat of wine to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. And they were experiencing this like overwhelming shortcoming. Um, and I guess that must have been a mystery to them, and they didn't think why. But God's saying, you yourselves were the original source of the defilement when you decided not to, um, to build my temple. Like, everything you did, um, like, every, all of your actions were infused with, you know, impurity. And so you were not able to gather what you wanted because um, of this original sin you incurred when you decided not to rebuild the temple. Um, all right, got to move on here. So let's go to 20 through 23. Okay. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and, and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay. So amidst all the chaos and confusion and uncertainty of the present time in Israel, when they're having to rebuild this temple, um, we spend verses 20 through 23 looking to the future. God's vigilant and he's always in control and he's building for the future. And the scene he describes is pretty intense. Um, it would have probably been pretty reassuring to the Israelites. He's saying, um, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. So that's pretty intense. And he concludes it by saying, um, that everyone's going to go down by the sword of his brother. Like, I'm going to shake the earth so thoroughly, and we're going to have such a radical change that um, the enemies are going to turn on themselves. Um, that's what it means when it says that they're going to go down by the sword of their brothers. Um, so that's pretty, you know, incredible. And then, um, in sort of a scary way. But then in verse 23, this is what I love about it. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, what I haven't told you yet is that Zerubbabel was important in this whole big story of redemptive history because way back when, God made a covenant with his people that there would always be someone from the line of David on the throne of Israel. And we know that the Messiah has to come from the line of David. So it's really important that we have a king from the line of David ruling Israel. And that's Zerubbabel's role for the future. Zerubbabel is going to assume um, power over Israel and... Um, He's the one that God has chosen to fulfill his covenant. And um, so you would think this guy would be a pretty big deal, pretty exalted by God. And he is, in a, in a sense. Um, but what I love is that when he's, he addresses Zerubbabel, he says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. Um, this is the man that's going to fulfill his covenant he ordained with David. He's going to restore the line of David. He's gonna, he calls him his signet ring, which is like a symbol of kingly power. Um, it's what you would like stamp a document as your seal of approval. Um, this is the guy who's going to set up the direct line for Jesus Christ to be born, um, which is crazy to think about that this whole thing's going to come full circle. God's ordaining a man 
to be in power, who is then going to be have a descendant who is then going to bring about God incarnate, the Lord of hosts, the, the military maestro of this whole, whole deal is going to come down and be born through this man's line. And the word he uses to describe Zerubbabel is my servant. Um, and so that's just a powerful statement about the order of God's kingdom is different from the order of the worldly kingdom, that servants are the most exalted members in the kingdom of God. So I'm going to close with that. Um, bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for the promises that you left us in the Old Testament and the picture of your character that you've revealed to us. We thank you for the promise um, that Jesus would come and bring us peace and welcome us all and his family that we may be unified under you um, and bask in your glory and be your servants for your kingdom to come for eternity. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. In big church we don't clap much, but I think we should clap today. Great job. Great job. Thanks for coming.